0: Thank you for your welcome, and uh, it's good to be here. I've been to this building, <clears throat> I think, only once before, and that was a few years ago. So it's good to be here again, and uh, good to have this theme before us. Just thinking about Martin Luther, if you think of where we are <clears throat> in time, go back to Martin Luther. That's roughly, give or take fifty years, the same amount of time from Jeremiah to Jesus. It's a very similar, about five, 550 years or thereabouts. And of course the book of Jeremiah is, a, is a, one of the major prophets, a huge book, 52 chapters. And Jeremiah's ministry was spread over a number of kings. He, he, he gives you those kings in the opening verses of his book. And one of them of course is Jehoiakim here. And he takes Jerusalem up to the capture of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar and the sadness of that whole fall of Jerusalem is expressed in the book of Lamentations which is kind of like an appendix to Jeremiah now here's a, 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 one of those amazing incidents I, 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 did, I was very pleased that all the names were read so well it's a bit of a frightening chapter to be given with a whole list of names um, and just, which were just smoothly delivered which was great Uh, It's a great story. It's a great incident. It's a very sad incident in some ways, but it's it's, it's quite a moving thing. Uh, So I'd like us to think a little bit about this incident. And we'll refer to one or two other things in connection with Jeremiah as we go along. Now, here we are living in England. I I know it's Yorkshire first and foremost, but it's England. And um, we have a queen do you know? I never get this right. Was she? Was she? Was a coronation in 1953? It was, wasn't it? It was the year before I was born, so I, I wasn't able to watch it on TV. Imagine there wasn't much TV around in then. But you can watch it on YouTube if you want to watch the coronation, <laughs> and uh, you can actually see it on there. And, and, and I'm going to quote to you something, which is, when you look back at it now, given the history of England what I'm going to read to you is actually not at all surprising given the history of England. And when the Queen was being at her coronation and becoming the Queen, there's a whole series of things that have to be said and done. And there's a little point where the Archbishop of Canterbury says this to the the incoming Queen. Will you, to the utmost of your power, maintain the laws of God and the true profession of the gospel? Will you to the utmost of your power maintain in the United Kingdom the Protestant Reformed religion established by law? Will you maintain and preserve inviolably the settlement of the Church of England and the doctrine, worship, discipline and government thereof as it by law established England. And will you preserve unto the bishops and clergy of England and to the churches there committed to their charge all such rights and privileges as by law do or shall appertain to them or any of them? They used to speak like that in those days. And the Queen said in response, All this I promise to do. The she didn't have to repeat it all. Then the Queen, it says this, Then the Queen, arising out of her chair, supported as before, the sword of state being carried before her, shall go to the altar and make her solemn oath in the sight of all the people to to observe the promises, laying her right hand upon the Holy Gospel in the great Bible, which was before carried in the procession and is now brought from the altar by the Archbishop, the Bible to be brought And tender to her as she kneels upon the steps and be brought saying these words. The things which I have here before promised I will perform and keep, so help me God. Then the queen shall kiss the book and sign the oath. And the queen having thus taken her oath shall return to her chair and the Bible shall be delivered to the dean of Westminster. Now, given the history, as I say, of England, that is not at all surprising, that you would have a a sovereign installed in that particular manner. But, we would have to say, it seems a very, very different England now, and we have no idea what it's going to be like when there's another coronation. And it's just interesting, for all sorts of reasons, is that little clip there, but The reason I cite it is just to remind us of the Bible and the sovereign. Now, of course, in the history of Israel, God's word was of great importance to the king. And the king of Israel had great responsibilities in that respect. And all through the history of Israel, which, of course, as you know, begins with King Saul... And then it runs all the way through all the writings of the prophets in First Kings and Second Kings and so on. And Judah had 20 kings and I think only four of them were good. Israel, the northern kingdom after the split when Solomon died, had 19 kings and they were all bad. Bad in the sense that they paid no regard whatsoever to the word of God. So this is all part of this kind of context. And I know that um, it's been wisely suggested by, by many, and particularly in Alec Mottier, that in a sense, this all this sorrow through kings is part of the Bible's showing that there's a heart cry for a king. And of course, King Jesus comes eventually. The King of Kings. Now, the fourth year... Of the king of Jehoiakim. Which was 605 BC. It was the first year of the new resurgent Babylon. And uh, that's mentioned in, in Jeremiah 25. That in itself was ominous. Since Jeremiah would describe him as. The servant of the Lord. Who would carry out God's judgment on Israel. Chapter 27. And the foe from the north is on the scene. And in that same year, Nebuchadnezzar won a decisive battle, defeating Egypt, the only other major power, and thereby signalling his imperial intentions over the whole region. Babylon is on the march. Now, just to give you a little outline again of this chapter, there's kind of four sections to the chapter. And we're not going to to wade through every aspect of it. I want to do it in a slightly different way this morning. But verses 1 to 10, Jeremiah is told to take a scroll and to write. And Jeremiah sends Baruch to read what he has written. And then verses 11 to 19, Micaiah and Shaphan There is their response to the reading, and they have a plan to take it to the king. And then, verses 20 to 26, we have some royal Bible burning. And then, in verses 27 to 32, Jeremiah is told to take another scroll to replace the one that was burned. Now, one writer says this, and it's an interesting little sentence or two. This is a rare insight into the earliest processes that led us to have a Bible at all. Here is Scripture in the making. Even kings and bonfires cannot stop it. And that is so true, isn't it? And you're actually getting a little glimpse in here. And this is not the only way. I mean, if you remember in the opening chapter of Hebrews, it talks about the way in which God spoke at different times and in different ways uh, over a long period of time. The whole process of of the collecting together of the Bible is a fascinating historical uh, reality. And we're getting a bit of a glimpse of it here. And, you know, when we pick up our Bibles, we're picking up a book with a phenomenal history that can be examined and studied and we can have confidence that God's word has come to us. Well what I want to do is I want to just sort of pick out some things that that this chapter suggests to us. First of all let me put it to you like this. Here is an echo from Eden but the volume is turned up. Now what do I mean by that? Well, we learn from Genesis that even as early as Adam and Eve, through the whisperings of Satan, God's word was questioned. And actually opposed. And that actually led to the, the fall, what we call the fall, when, whenever we, we became out of sync with our God and we were in conflict with him, having repudiated his word. Has God said? And this is this reminds me of this, the attitude of the king here to God's word. And of course, um, what you've got, and, and I say it's, it's an echo of Eden, it reminds you of that, but the volume's turned up because you've got this intense rejection and refusal and rebellion It's so strong in this chapter. And uh, somebody put it like this. Jehoiakim knew, of course, that this was more than wanton waste of papyrus. It was the word itself he was rejecting. The word of Jeremiah, claiming to be the word of the Lord, the God of Israel. And, And listen to this. But not content with saying, I will not listen to any of that. Jehoiakim insisted on listening to every word and then publicly repudiated every word he heard. Jehoiakim's rejection of the word of God was not a hasty mistake. It was the most deliberate act of defiance of the spoken and the written word of God recorded in the Bible. An awesome attempt to eliminate the concrete, sovereign, word and will of God well that's that's how to express it this echo of Eden the volume is turned up here is the king of Israel who has responsibilities to the people of Israel and has uh, strong responsibilities before the God of heaven and the God of Israel to obey the word of God with such a, a terrible repudiation of And that's a very, very strong and striking thing. And I don't want to digress too much, but you know, we, there is something about the human heart that does refuse the Word of God. I mean, sometimes even as Christians, when we're reading our Bible, we, we can be a bit in conflict because we don't want to do what the Lord says or we're reminded of something and we, 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 we resist it and it is the very mark of the Christian walking humbly with God, that they are sensitive and and responsive to the word of God, not wanting to reject it and to refuse it. There's there's often a bit of a tension. So that's the first thing. It's an echo of Eden, but the volume's well and truly turned up because so much is known and so much has been revealed and so much has been done. And of course, bear in mind that God is through Jeremiah warning Israel that if they persist, in their rebellion and their refusal uh, and their departure from his truth, it will have severe consequences. Well, he's not worried about that. The second thing is a little quote from, and I want to borrow a little line from Matthew Henry. <clears throat> Matthew Henry's commentary, it's an old commentary, you know, but it's amazing how uh, he has the ability to express things. Things that just stick in your mind. I can't remember how long ago I read this, but I remember reading in there once Grace does not run in the blood. You know, you can inherit a lot of things from your parents, but you can't inherit grace, that comes directly from God. Now, why do I say that in in this particular context? Well, for a very good reason. Because if we were to go to, and we will, uh, if I can find it, 2 Kings and chapter 22. Now, this is where you get the historical side of some of these things. Uh, Jeremiah, what, what you, you know, for those of you that maybe are relatively new or still learning your way around your Bibles, if you take, say, from... 2 Samuel through to Chronicles that kind of historical block there is where a lot of the prophets virtually all of the prophets fit in some of them are after the exile but but a lot of them fit in there and the prophets tended to be kind of counsellors and uh, consciences of the kings of Israel reminding them of their responsibility I mean they they spoke to all the people but they particularly communicated to the kings the word of God now there's a, there's a point where the word of God has kind of just been lost and in 2 Kings 22 you get the, uh, the beginning of um, a, a reformation that begins under Josiah now Josiah is Jehoiakim's father like father like son Not at all. Uh, Josiah came to the throne when he was eight years old. Obviously, he had supervisors to help him and look after him until he became a little bit older. But it's interesting. When they were repairing the temple, they found the book of the Lord. Now, this is probably the Pentateuch, the books of Moses. But it's interesting what his reaction to what they read in there. uh, And it's really, if we pick it up with verse 11, it says this. And, and, you know they, they read it and he realizes, we, we've not been living according to God's word. We, we, we've really gone seriously astray. And so verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes and that was a sign of, of remorse and regret and repentance. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Hiakim the son of Shaphan and Akbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant familiar names there go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. And this leads on to a, a reform and a restoration well Jehoiakim cuts up Jeremiah's scroll and burns it grace doesn't run in the blood and we each need to seek God for forgiveness and for salvation and for restoration of heart so that's the second thing is an echo of Eden The the volume is turned up. Grace does not run in the blood. What a contrast between this father and son here in their their response to hearing the word of God. Thirdly, Satan is not mentioned here in Jeremiah 36, but you can be sure he is around. It's interesting in that that great hymn of Luther's he, he talks about Satan. And all people have all kinds of strange ideas and concepts of Satan. But actually, in Scripture, one of the great things that he has seen, and this is sometimes in an intellectual sense, it's in a kind of a, a sense of the heart and, 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 and the very composition of the being, he is opposed to the truth that God speaks. He is a liar and the father of lies, Jesus said. And there is this tremendous opposition and resistance and, and uh, sort of an enemy feeling against the word of God. Whatever God says, he wants to, he, he wants to, he wants to burn it. And I was thinking about this just driving over again this morning. It's good, isn't it? It's a good job to be thinking about the sermon you're going to be speaking on. But I was thinking about it coming over, and I was thinking about, you know, truth, even the whole idea of truth. For a long time now, it's not not a recent thing. It's been, you know, we're supposed to live in a a, a post-truth age. In other words, there's no objective truth. And you're familiar with all this thing. You, You hear about it all the time. But when God speaks... He speaks the truth. If he speaks about himself, we learn what God is and who he is and what he's like. If he speaks about us, he, he tells us about ourselves. And what we what we see in society is the creation of God, this, this wonderful creation called humanity, departing further and further away from the truth of the one who made it. And so what you get is We make up our own story as we go along. And so we've got this incredible complexity now about even what a a human being is. Satan, who spoke in the garden, still whispers. he's, He's behind the scene here. Satan opposes the work and the word of God. There's a spiritual reality there that we have to take account of. And um, whilst we haven't got to be obsessed with it and we haven't to be terrified of it, we have to reckon with it. There is an opposition to the truth of God. And it it manifests itself in all kinds of different ways. And here, this angry king, it's interesting what what, uh, the, the writer said that I quoted earlier, that he didn't just sort of say, give me that scroll and turn it all up and throw it in the fire. He listened to everyone and then he just cut it off bit by bit and burned it. I'll listen to it first. Yeah, I'll burn that. I'll listen to that. I'll burn that till the whole scroll is burned. So, an echo of Eden but the volume is turned up. Grace does not run in the blood. Satan is not mentioned here but you can be sure he is around wherever the truth of God is undermined. Whether it's at a national level or a personal level fourthly you can rebel against the truth but you cannot stop it you can burn a bible if you like but you can't burn the truth it's a bit like in in another sense it's a bit like the burning bush in, in Exodus where it's on fire but it's not consumed the scroll was burned up but it, the truth was not consumed it's not the scroll the ink on the paper it's what is written the abiding truth now that, might, that, might, that abiding truth might be a very immediate thing such as here the Babylonians were going to you're, you're in danger of being consumed by the Babylonians because of your disobedience to my truth or it can be just a little bit more abstract than that—just the very truth of God about anything that He speaks on. And whatever battles uh, seem lost, the war is won. You know, if, if you think of that as a little battle, Jehoiakim seems to win. He burns the—he he burns it all up. He's won his little—he's won his little battle. But we know he's lost the war. He can't possibly win the war. And the words that, that, in a sense, I suppose, if, if, if you're marking your Bible, you know, you, you sometimes you underline things, or you or you highlight it with a with a yellow marker pen, or something like that. Uh, the one that needs highlighting in this, to me, is when the Lord says, "Take another scroll." <laughs> so the king angrily burns it all up, and the Lord just says, "Take another scroll." you really think you're going to stop the word of God by doing that take another scroll so you can rebel against the truth but you cannot stop it now we're going to think a little bit more about this this evening as well because we'll be looking at 2 Timothy where Paul says the word of God is not bound not chained so this is our theme for today, really. Number five, then. Rebelling against the word leads to ruin. Now, there's a very ultimate sense in that. You know, that when, when Adam and Eve refused the word of God, it brought sin into the world, and it's, brought, it's sort of poisoned at the fountain, and it's just shot through the whole of human history. And it will not be removed until the new heavens and the new earth. And that's at the cost of the death and resurrection of Jesus that we've remembered in our communion service. Rebellion against the word leads to ruin. Whatever is gained is not really gained. Oh, and what did Jehoiakim gain? It was very momentary. And somebody put it like this. Jeremiah responds with a message to Jehoiakim of unspeakable sorry, unmistakable doom, he would die unloved, unmourned, and unburied. Verses 29 to 31. He had sealed not only his own fate, but that of his nation. The finality of verse 31 cancels the possibility still lurking of the perhaps of verses 3 and 7. And what, what the writer means there is he's saying that when it gets to the end, at the beginning, there's some hopefulness. Here's the word of God. Perhaps they will respond to it. Maybe they'll receive it humbly. Maybe they'll change tack. Maybe they'll come back to me. Maybe they'll mend their ways and see the truth again and submit to the truth. But once that's lost, then comes verse 31. And uh, that's lost then, altogether. So. Verse 31 says, and I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and upon the people of Judah all the disaster that I have pronounced against them, but they would not hear. And so God's word emerges in the midst of the real world. And God's word is as real as the world. And God's Word has those who put it in their hearts. May we be among them this morning. We put God's Word in our hearts. But God's Word has those who put it in the fire. We've even been reminded of the persecution and the difficulties in China. In 1915, a Russian Armenian was reading his Bible when he was executed. And one man writes, he said, I saw the Bible, large, thick, and well used. Inside was a reddish stain that permeated most of the book. The stain was the blood of this man, one of more than a million casualties of a religious and ethnic holocaust. About 70 years later, a large shipment of Bibles entered Romania from the west, and Ceausescu's the dictator of Romania, Ceausescu's lieutenants, confiscated them, shredded them, turned them into pulp. They then had the pulp reconstituted into toilet paper and sold back to the West. That was the attitude towards the Word of God, towards the Bible. Now, I can assure you that the church is growing in Romania today. And not only that, but there are many Romanians in other parts of Europe that are coming to faith and uh, from that point of view I'm looking forward to seeing again some of this, this coming week because I will be visiting a university that has a, a theological department but it, it does seem to be a very biblical one in Orania and then I shall be visiting a, a Bible school in Cluj which is the capital of Transylvania isn't it amazing how that was all turned into toilet paper? All those Bibles and just sold back to the West. In Cluj, one of the streets is called December the thirty-first, and it's when there was a, there was shooting and protest, and many Christians were, were, were actually killed there as well. Well, it's been put like this, and I find this is this is a tremendous statement. God is indomitable. God is not deterred in the least by the king's refusal. God is a scroll maker and will continue to make scrolls. Any particular scroll from the God of Israel can be dismissed, as was this first one. But it will promptly and boldly be reiterated. It is clear in this dramatic narrative that scroll making, i.e. Bible production, is a daring, dangerous human enterprise. Luther was locked away for a year and produced his translation into German. It is equally clear that this scroll is making a clear example of the way in which God counters human pretension and resistance. God will not leave the king scroll-less even if the king wants no scroll. And it's true, isn't it? And our nation is not Bible-less, or from, far from it. I've got a huge book on, by my bed that I've, I've had for a young time. I've had it a long time, and I've never, I've only dipped, and it's the, the history of the Bible in English. It's a huge tone, because there's a lot to be said. God hasn't left us scroll this, has he, as a nation? Well, just a few little points of just personal application. Although thinking about all these things, it it, it it strengthens your confidence in the Bible. It, it reminds you of the resistance of the human heart to the Bible. I mean, really, it's true, isn't it? If, you, if you're a church seeking to preach and teach the Bible, you're on Mission Impossible, humanly speaking. It's just great that God does the impossible, so we're all right. Bible study is needed and worth it. And God's word is indeed, we've often heard it said, we've often said it, we've often thought about it. But God's word is indeed a gift to us. Now secular, the secular Europe, which includes the UK of course. And Europe is a very, it is a secular continent. We've got 700 plus million people in Europe. And many of the countries are very, very secular. Czech Republic, for example. France, for example. And actually we can learn a lot from other Christians in these European countries as to how they cope and deal with this. We can learn from them. But, you know, it can, it, it can, it can oppose the Bible, it can rebel against the Bible, it can burn the Bible, but it can never destroy God's word; it can never render God's promises invalid. You ever think about that? All the promises that God has made to His those who trust in Him, and those who by faith receive Him; those promises can never be invalidated. And also, His purposes can never be overturned so he he says he will well let's take it it to the ultimate sense God says he will make a new heavens and a new earth who's going to stop him? nobody nothing no one so that's encouraging to us we we need to study our Bibles to treasure it and and, and to be confident in the face of opposition but here's a, a little just a little something for you just at a purely personal level on our day day, day by day journey in faith. You don't have to cut up and burn the Bible to reject it. So as I go about my daily life, when I willfully and stubbornly choose the wrong way or my own way or I go against God's way in some particular way, I'm rejecting the Bible. I'm not cutting it up and burning it, but I am rejecting it. Trust that the Lord will give His hearts to receive it and to, to want to live according to it. The Lord notes those who tremble at His word, as it says. So treasure your Bible. Treasure it. I mean, I don't. At least forty-five years I've been reading the Bible. I mean, but but before that, even in my childhood, I can remember, I can remember going to a little Bible study as a nine-year-old. At the Christian Endeavour in Belfast, and we were studying the Book of Romans. That's what it was like in Belfast in those days. It's changed a bit. Treasure your Bible, but I'll tell you this: I've been reading, reading the Bible. All, I mean, and I find that even now, just reading it and thinking about it, it's it's like as fresh as ever, isn't it? It's timeless. And then there's little bits that you, that you forgot, you think, Oh, I, I forgot that. And then there's bits you read where you think, Do you know that is that's hit me here for the first time. I haven't even appreciated that. Or if I have that it's a lot I've long since forgotten it. Treasure your Bible. Trust in your Bible. Life batters us. There's no doubt about that. Life in a fallen planet, you get batter. All the time. Sometimes it's health. Sometimes it's relationships. Sometimes it's work. Sometimes it's bullying, which, as we all know, doesn't just happen at school. Trust in what God says. I have to tell myself that all the time. But also, and finally, train yourself in it. You know, don't ever think, Ah, that's it, I know the Bible. Train yourself in it. Set your stall out to to go at it with real diligence. There's lots of good aids to help you. That's profitable. But there's also just the regular reading and thinking and meditating. Treasure your Bible, trust it. And train yourself in it. The exact opposite of Jehovah.